Programming Throwdown, episode 150, Code Reviews with On Freund. Take it away, Patrick. Well, we have a divisible by 10 episode, 150, so that's got to be a, a positive sign. We made it another, it's not an anniversary, I don't know what we call it, another... Decaversary? Jubilee. Decaversary. Oh, <laughs> nice. Oh, that's true. Oh, okay, too soon. Um, anyways, so we're here to talk about code reviews, which is an awesome topic. Uh, even in the pre-show, I was getting a little excited just hearing uh, some of the thoughts from our guests today. Uh, so I, I, rather than tee it up and just make everyone really excited, you're already here. So we'll just go ahead and go into it. Uh, I don't need to pitch an episode coming out next week. It's here. It's now. Uh, we're here with An Freund, who is the co-founder and CEO of Wilco. Welcome to the show, An. Thank you so much. Great to be on board. So before we get into the topic, although I'm pretty geared up, I'm not going to lie, I talk a lot about code reviews. So uh, <laughs> like before we get there, uh, let's talk a little bit about you. So we try to ask a lot of our guests, I think it's really interesting. Maybe it's just a very uh, vanity project of mine to sort of like, that's not the right, right word. Anyways, to just understand a lot about other people and how they sort of developed and, and got into their current roles. But Tell me a little bit about, like, do you remember your first exposure to tech, like the first time you wrote a program or the first time you got a computer, like just that memorable sort of early thing that happened? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. If, if that's your vanity project, you're on the right track. So I think I was around eight years old. I wrote my first computer program in BASIC. And back then in Israel, there was like a famous series of booklets about how to write basic. It was called Machshevet. Everyone in, you know, who wanted to do anything with a computer in Israel had it. Uh, and it was like a series of, I don't know, 15 or, or of them or so. Uh, you know, the first one was obviously the Hello World uh, program, but then very quickly it progressed. And I actually loved writing games from day one, you know, whether they're text-based or uh, at some point, um, you know, with actual graphics. Uh, but that was always something that you know, drew me even even more than playing games. I think writing games was something that I found really cool. Awesome. I think eight is a bit on the earlier side than a lot of guys earlier than my, in mine. But it is interesting. So there's a booklet. Was the booklet like a, a sort of workbook or just like a sort of copy and paste examples? I mean, both are kind of interesting. But what what was kind of like the contents? So a lot, a lot of it was copy and paste, and, and like the literal sense that you know you look at the at the thing and, the, and then you type it. But uh, a lot of it was like fill in the blanks, and some of it, you know, towards the end of every booklet, you'd usually get something that's a bit more, you know, adventurous, and and you had to start from scratch and and build something meaningful. That's awesome. That's not uncommon, actually. The this, I guess today you would literally like go to the website and just highlight it, and you know. Command C or Control C, Command V, Control V. But like, I think this thing you said it was true for me as well. Like looking in an actual physical book and having to, without errors, type in something and, and see the magic and, and debug it. And the booklet thing, I don't know of any, you know, in, in the United States, any sort of booklet for computer science. But there's a famous one for electronics, which is Forest Mims. That's even even uh, pretty. Why that been like that? I don't even. I want to say I was going to guess the decade, but I'll be wrong, so I'll have to look it up later. But in in Radio Shack, which was like a small chain of like electronics yep. hobbyist stores for early computers, they would have these little booklets of circuits, so timers using the five 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 integrated circuit or whatever. And it's kind of like what you were saying. People would sort of look at them, and you could put them on your breadboard and poke in the little things. Yeah. And, and oh, you know, Radio I Shack love doing that as a kid. Yeah, I had oh. I had all of those you know electronic kits where you build your own alarm system yes, or your, uh, yes. your uh, radio or whatever 
uh, AM radio. Yeah, that was that was cool. I love those. Yeah. In, so. in Canada, we had uh, I don't know if we had this in the US too. Um, we had these books where it was like uh, you'd basically read through the story and at some point the story would pause and in the book there would be all this basic code that you would have to type into your computer. And the basic code would include like some interactivity. So it would ask you oh, wow. like, you know, like type in like this number and then do this with it and try and solve this little puzzle. And then once you got the answer, you could flip to the next page. And then when you got to the next page, they just assumed you got it right. It's like, you're right. It's 21. And half the time I would <laughs> type it in wrong. And it would be like, oh, uh, it's 21, but I got, you know, syntax error 13. Well, all right, let's keep going. <laughs> and so it's, but it's really fun. That, that's awesome. I, I love those things. If, if you ever manage to pick up on the name of the, of those uh, books, I'd love to get my hands on it. Oh, let me see if I can do some digging. It would be some great nostalgia. So that, that's pretty, I thought you were going to tell us like a, uh, super clever choose your own adventure like if you put your answer go to that page number and then there'd be like a little debug thing like oh you got 17 you messed up order of operations you know so now you're off by one <laughs> this page was intentionally left blank oh yeah okay all right so so you're eight you're you're you know copying stuff from these books and learning basic i mean it's awesome um did you kind of fall out of it for a while or did you just kind of continually do some amount of programming through through to college? Like, what was your sort of uh, uh, path there? So I, I did some amount of programming throughout school. Um, in, in high school, we actually had this thing where um, in Israel, you have to volunteer for something during high school in, in at least one of the years. And there are specific things that you can do. And, and a friend of mine volunteered for like this, the sort of nonprofit that is working on road safety. And he was supposed to build a game, like a board game for kids where, the, you know, that teaches road safety. And he reached out to me and said, you know, what if I build a video game? So in addition to my volunteer work, I actually ended up uh, working on his too. <laughs> and we worked together. He was really good with graphics. I was good with, um, with writing code. And we built this cool game. It had like several levels and the first one was like a walkway and every time you you got the uh, answer right you would advance to the next block of it uh we're not going to talk about what happens if you got it wrong uh, <laughs> and, and the second level was you're like roller skating and and you you get to uh to street signs and you have to make out which one it is um i don't remember the third level uh, we actually uh, got together like a few months and, ago and, and talked about it. But then after that, it was really cool. We decided, all right, let's build another game. And <clears throat> this one was like a fighting game, like Mortal Kombat style, which was really hot in those days. And we filmed one of our friends against a white sheet. And he kind of went pixel by pixel to get just, you know, just the guy. And we filmed him like, you know, giving out punches and kicks and all of that. And jumping in the air and we got to a point where we have our friend against like a like a sketchy bar backdrop and you can make him jump you can make him kick you can make him throw a, a, a punch and it was really cool we never got to the to the stage where there's another player um so you could just you know move this guy around and that's it but it was fun yeah that sounds awesome just to, for posterity's sake the series is called micro adventure and it was actually an american thing it was published by scholastic 
But if, if folks want to look that up, you read right. these micro adventure books and they have to solve little basic programs along the way. Um, but I, similar to you on, I also made a bunch of video games. The most infamous one was it was arm wrestling where you had to hit the space bar so many times <laughs> per second to, to, you know, for so many seconds to arm wrestle victory. And the computer awesome. uh, lab, uh, they broke three keyboards and then that game got banned. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder what the equivalent is for nowadays for kids who are, you know, that the age that we were back then. Like, what is this thing they're tinkering with now? But I'm not sure. They, they create videos on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, that's probably. But uh, is that is that to the same level of like, uh, I guess it is kind of a technical thing. Like it can lead to more technical stuff later. Like yeah. Video and, and, and it all depends on, you know, how far they take it. Right. They can, some of them get really professional and, and, you know, throw in some really cool things, but it's not completely programmable. Uh, maybe I'm blanking on the name. Um, the, the block thing. Minecraft and Roblox. Minecraft, they do exactly. A lot of this, yeah. 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 So maybe Minecraft and, and Roblox are the, the closest equivalent these days. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. So, so if you're a fighting game on, I'm not sure if you were aware at the time or even now, but that description of how you did, I mean, that early motion capture video, whatever, is how the original Mortal Kombat, you know, there was some video a few years ago that I think came out where they were yeah. showing yeah. the person like doing the scenes of that ended up in the in the video game. So I don't know. Did you guys know that? Or did you like independently just like have this idea? <laughs> well, we, we assumed, I, I only caught that video like three months ago, I think. And, and we're talking about more than 20 years back. But sure. uh, we, we did assume, you know, Mortal Kombat looks like these characters were videoed. So we assumed uh, that's what was happening. And we did know about the green screen technique, but we didn't have anything green. Uh, <laughs> so we just, you know, went with white. <laughs> We had to dress him up in very dark uh, uniform to make sure that he stands out against the the white background. No, but that problem solving, right? I mean, like interdiscipline problems. I mean, that's actually like really awesome. And I can totally see like how you end up in a career in tech if that's the kind of things, even if you don't know that's where you're going, if that's the kind of things you're doing, like it just feels like a, a natural follow on in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so you're in, you're in high school helping volunteer stuff, doing this. And then did you end up studying computer science or related field in, in university? Yeah, I did. Uh, I went to Tel Aviv University. I studied computer science, which in retrospect has nothing to do with programming. It's computer science. These are very different topics. I enjoyed every minute of it. Don't get me wrong. I think computer science is a fascinating topic. And at some point I was contemplating um, continuing a more academic path and, and you know, actually doing computer science as a career. But, you know, when I got my first real job, I realized that actually nothing that I've learned in college has any bearing towards what I do at work. I think this thing you're saying might be, uh, is definitely true, but it might be a sort of a revelation to some people that like going and getting a computer science degree doesn't make you a programmer out the other side. Do you want to elaborate? I mean, I'm happy to elaborate too, but I'll give you the opportunity since you're the guest. Do you want to elaborate like why one isn't equivalent? Sure. So first of all, you know, I'll start by saying that I do recommend people get a computer science degree because I think, like I said, it's awesome. It's interesting. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, there are a lot of uh, subtopics within it that you could explore. So, you know, different tastes, etc. cetera. Uh, it's super interesting. And at some point you might be using some of the tools that you've picked up in college in your job, but it's usually, you know, few and far between. But most 
of the most of, of what you learn in school is very theoretical. It actually has nothing to do with computers. Computer science is eventually a branch of math. And large chunks of it deals with hypothetical computers with tapes and, and operations. So, you know, what you learn doesn't necessarily prepare you for, for the job. And I guess even more importantly, the few things that you do learn that are meaningful are all about code. And the work of a software engineer is way more than code. There are so many skills that go into what you do on a daily basis, whether it's soft skills, whether it's hard skills, there's just so many of them and you don't touch any of them in college. Yeah, I agree. I think there's uh, maybe an obvious, but this tension between, as you sort of saying, sort of the mathematical or I don't want to say philosophical, but almost that bent of sort of how to think about programs as a conceptual sort of uh, underpinning and actually coding or programming. And depending on your university, there may be a balance between them or even different degrees or specialties within the degree that have you doing more of one or more of the other. But I think like you're mentioning, you could take an image processing course and learn all about like theoretical, like binary thresholding of images and never open up OpenCV. And if you go do image processing, like on your own, you're like immediately going to go into a library and sort of be doing image processing tasks. And some universities have tried to adapt to match the expectations, but some have said, wait, that's not our business. Like our business is the business of teaching sort of like you're saying, Turing machines or the theoretical differences of a von Neumann architecture versus something else, or, you know, talking about, you know, compiler languages as like abstract syntax tree manipulation, not sort of the brass tacks of optimization. And so really kind of, I think that's part when you choose a university, that's like a a decision you're making when you're choosing what focus you're going to have. But what I, uh, having now being in the role where I interview people coming out of university for working on teams that that I'm on and and learning is a couple of things that one, not everyone, even at the end is realizing that they aren't coming out automatically as a programmer. It's not just telling me their curriculum or telling me, even if they did programming as class projects, that's not going to sell me enough on them. That doesn't teach me that they're going to hit the ground running or help me feel confident they're going to hit the ground running. And most of them don't realize, although I have had some candidates kind of self-aware say it that, you know, hey, there's a big difference in university. I was, it's all throwaway. There's like a scaffolding and I do a little fill in the blank. We were kind of talking about that. And then it goes away. Maintenance isn't a concern, even though we might talk about it, but there's no practice of maintenance. You work on a quote unquote team, but the, the dynamics, the economics of it, everything is just different. And so maybe it hints at what it would be like. Um, but some people have had internships, have that realization. Some have internships, don't quite. But it's just this interesting sort of mix of people and how prepared they come out. And often it's because of work that they took on on their own or on the side and not the curriculum. Exactly. And, you know, you come into the first day on the job and you're in the office and, you know, the person welcoming you is probably going to say, hey, why don't you uh, familiarize yourself with the rest of the team? And guess what? You've never learned anything about teamwork. You know, maybe there was like a project that you had to do in a group of four where, you know, two of them were too high to participate and, and the <laughs> other person was, you know, <laughs> banking on you to, to, to uh, complete the entire project. Uh, so you never really worked how, learned how to work in a team. And then maybe go familiarize yourself with the build system. And you're like, wait, what is a build system? I've never done that. 
And this is the way our CI/CD pipeline works. And like, wait, what? Uh, <laughs> and oh, by the way, we're using Git. And like, what's Git? You know, I've been doing everything on SVN and CVS. Oh, awesome. Okay. All right. Well, maybe we keep going because uh, we're, we can't stop here. We can't, can't pull over the train here and uh, uh, take the train stop. Uh, so we'll go keep going. All right. So, so you're studying in university computer science. Um, did you, did you kind of like do internships or did you just kind of focus heads down and get through and then, and then enter the workforce? How did that, and you said you were considering academia? Yeah. So I, I was, I was actually very, very fortunate. So second year, third semester of school, um, there's like a career fair. And it was actually meant mostly for electrical engineering majors. And it was meant for like, you know, seniors. But last minute, I say like, what the heck? Let me go there and see what's happening. So I go and, and I'm late because, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't intending on going. So I'm late. The guys are like folding up the booth of a company called Applied Materials and I'm like, oh, I'm too late. And the, the, the guy that was doing the interview is like, you know, hey, let me ask you a couple of questions. Let's see, if, you know, if it makes sense. And all of the questions he asked me were about operating systems. And I just happened to come out of operating system class like that day. And all of the questions he asked me were fresh in my brain. So he, he's like, what is, you know, what's, what's a context switch? And which, by the way, developers today probably don't even know what it is, but because they're lucky enough to be in, in higher level languages. But what's a context switch? And I look at, look at him and I'm like, are you kidding me? Because it's so fresh in my brain that I think that it's common knowledge. Are you kidding me? And he's like, no, what is it? And so I give a perfect answer, uh, you know, and he's <laughs> like, so he writes down, and I know this because he told me afterwards, he writes down very cocky, but knows his, knows his stuff. Um, Fair assessment <laughs> from the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, in retrospect, this was he got it completely right. We're actually very good friends now till this day, and this was you know almost twenty years ago. So he writes this down in his notebook, and then a few days later, I get a call, and they're like, "Why don't you come over for for an interview?" And I interview, and I manage to get the job, and I start working. You know, this was like you know in the break, the the winter break between. Uh, the third and fourth semester, I start working. So I never really had an internship per se, uh, but I was working throughout the second half of, of my uh, degree. Oh, awesome. So you were like working part-time while doing school? Yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Oh, and what? And so that company, uh, they were pretty low level if they were asking about operating system and context switching? Yeah, so Applied Materials is in the uh, semiconductor industry. Okay. And, and what they do is they make machines that either build or test or do anything in the manufacture of chips. So specifically, the team that I was working on was building this machine that could do two things. This was like an attempt to take two machines and turn them into one. So there was one machine that is measuring, say, the distance between two conductors to make sure that the, the board was printed right. And, you know, we're talking those distances. Obviously, it's, it's microns, right? Sure, sure, sure. So there was like this crazy electron microscope and, and all of that. And the other machine was classifying defects. So you know that there, there is a defect, defect in the wafer that you're looking at. A wafer is like a collection of a lot of chips. It's like a, a circular disk. So the second machine knows there's a def defect and tries to classify it. So you know what happened wrong during 
the, the manufacturing process. And we were building a machine that is trying to do both. So there was a lot of image processing. There was a lot of uh, controlling uh, the machinery. You, you, know, you had like a, basically a robot that is taking one wafer while taking the other wafer out because you didn't want to waste time. This is like the manufacturing floor. Every, everything needs to be super efficient. So you had you know, these arms that are bringing in one wafer, taking the other one out, and, and there's like a chamber in between where they, uh, you know, it's like, it's like those uh, spaceships where you need like a double latch. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got to be vacuumed down. Yeah. Yeah. Because everything is like super clean. You can't have any, you know, any particles of dust in there. So it, 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 was, it was pretty wild and pretty low level. It was fun. But I vowed not to do low-level low uh, since, and I, like many promises I made in my life, didn't actually live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, good. So you and I can't be friends, but okay, uh, keep, keep, keep going on. Uh, so I won't get sidetracked there either. So, so you're doing this, you're finishing up your, your degree, and then it sounds like maybe you decided not to go there when you graduated, or kind of take us through what happened, happened next. So when I was close to graduation, I decided that Applied Materials is no longer for me. Applied Materials is a Fortune 500 company. It's huge. It's American. I wanted to join an Israeli startup. You know, I'm based in Israel. I want to be where decisions are being taken, etc. And I joined a small startup. It was about 20 people. It was in the cybersecurity space. And I joined the server team because I didn't want to do low level anymore, right? So I'm on the server team, I'm writing .NET code, and you know, no need to manage memory, all of that. And what we were doing is this product that lets CISOs control what's happening in their organization in terms of external devices and content. So can't copy those files over to a USB, can't send those, uh, type, that type of content over email, et cetera, et cetera. And what do you know, you know within a year, I find myself in the um, agent team uh, writing Windows kernel drivers. Uh, it sounds like you didn't last long in your your avoidance. So, so you must have some skill there, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I hated it. You know, when you write Windows kernel drivers, you know, today it's somewhat easier because a lot of it could be done with virtual machines. But because we were dealing so much with hardware, you know, many of the things we did actually meant that we had to have another computer to test what we're building on. And, you know, your actual computer and the other computer are connected through a serial cable because that's the only way to debug kernel drivers. And any bug or almost any bug would cause a blue screen of death. And, you know, sometimes the cycle of blue screens of death where you actually have to wipe the hard drive clean and start from scratch. Uh, <laughs> and this was just, you know, that's where I learned the importance of a, of a really short feedback cycle. You know, when you're writing a driver and everything that you do wrong takes you like two hours to, you know, get something new on that computer to test it again, it's just so frustrating. Yeah, I think also the other thing that you're mentioning, which is kind of interesting, like nowadays or, or most development, I guess, takes place in an app running in your computer. And the goal of the operating system in part is to prevent the app from crashing the operating system. Uh, and so or one of the many goals. But this level you're talking about is, is lower than that. So those protections aren't in place for efficiency reasons, for whatever. And over time, they've tried to, to kind of get better at it, as, as you've said. Or you can use a virtual machine, a machine running in your machine. But the same is true largely of all embedded development. So if you're you know, on an ARM, a small ARM core or a MIPS processor of some sort, yeah, like 
you're over some serial cable or USB to a tiny little board. And if you screw up, like, you don't, who knows what's going on? You know, you're trying to like get commands out. You're probing it with like a little multimeter or an oscilloscope trying to like move a line up and down to say that you're alive and still running. <laughs> the, the one thing they do have going for them is that boot times are faster. Other than that, it's just like those days of uh, Windows uh, drivers. But, you know, Windows could take two minutes to boot. That was another point of frustration. And, and you know, you said that you're, you know, lower level than the operating system in many cases. You know, the crazy thing is, Sometimes when you're writing Windows drivers, you're in a higher priority than the memory pager, which means that you can't use certain types of memory because your code can't be interrupted. Like the the processor is going to prevent your code from being interrupted in order to fetch memory from disk. So that means you have to do with only memory that is available in your RAM this this is hell. Like, if you can avoid it, please do. Oh, I thought we were going to get a chance to talk about it. I mean, I have a bad anecdote one time about spending <laughs> several... Well, we can talk about it. I'm saying you should avoid it as, as a profession, but as a, as a discussion topic, sure. Yeah. Several weeks spent debugging, like, an intricacy between a deadlock of two interrupts at slightly different parties that were not at the parties they were supposed to be, and one was interrupting the other, and and it just created a, a sort of like cascade where it kept interrupting it, which would fill up the stack. <laughs> but of course, none of that's obvious, right? And so, anyways, yep. yeah. Um, yeah. I, have a, I have a similar kind of story to you to you on. I um, Patrick and I worked at a place where we did a lot of embedded, but I I didn't do a lot of embedded. And so I was writing these kind of like I was in a space where we had you know gigabytes of of memory, and so it wasn't an issue. And at some point, someone asked me to do something on a DSP. And uh, yeah, I just, I couldn't do it. I was like, you know, I, I just, I started like, I was like, oh, I'll make all these structures and I'll just have this like linked list and this tree and I'll manage everything. And then I, it's like, oh, your program won't actually fit on the chip. And I was like, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess the program itself takes space. And, and I was way out of my league. I was like, Patrick, bail me out. <laughs> Somebody help me. <laughs> all right. All right. So, okay. Keep going. So, so you're. At a cybersecurity firm, you're writing agents, so like things that run on the Windows computers and then get managed up. And then from there, sort of how did you, uh, what, what came next? Yeah. So by the way, after that, I once again vowed not to do any type of low-level programming and, and failed once again to keep my promise. But this time it's, it's a, you know, a bit more elective. So I, I'm, I do a lot of home automation and I end up writing a lot of code that actually deals with hardware in my home, sometimes I had to reverse engineer the, the protocols that they use. But anyway, so after that, I was with that company for about seven years in total. It was acquired at some point. I stayed with the acquirer. Uh, but at the same time, I also moved to New York. And after leaving the acquiring company, I joined a small startup called Handy. And Handy is kind of like Uber for home services. So, you know, you can book someone to come clean your home or et cetera, et cetera. It was a very small startup and we were like four people and I joined as VP of engineering and, and I was supposed to build an engineering team and, and start, you know, making sure this thing actually works. And, and, you know, finally I'm in the clear and I'm writing high level server uh, backend code. You know, I started hiring people and, you know, once again, I witnessed that, uh, 
you know, coming out of college and not being prepared for work kind of thing now as a hiring manager, but, you know, very similar to what I experienced on my first day on the job. And I did that for a couple of years. And then once again, transitioned um, to WeWork, uh, where I was initially VP of engineering as well. Uh, that was a wild ride. That's, you know, that's material for, for a 90 minute long episode for sure. Uh, probably, you know, way more than yeah, that. Yeah, I think we'll just not have to go on to that one. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> and, you know, did that and, and spent a few years at WeWork. Um, that was actually really cool. We've built some really amazing tech. You know, people always ask, why does WeWork even need tech? But I can honestly say that some of the things that we've built are, are groundbreaking. And, you know, even things as mundane as making sure that key, card, key cards actually work. So if you've ever been to a hotel, you know that they don't work <laughs> in like at least 20% of the cases. Whereas at WeWork, they always work and you can actually switch buildings and switch companies and, and even visit a building. Um, that you're not a part of. And if you have a booking there, it's going to open. Um, so we built a lot of really cool things, both you know software and hardware to make these things work. And after leaving WeWork, I, I spent a few more um, years. I, I was six years at WeWork and I've done uh, more than just engineering at some point and you know, moved on to different roles. But after leaving WeWork, I did a short, very short stint as a VC, but um, decided that the life of a founder is a, is a better life for me. And that's when we started Wilco. Okay, awesome. Well, we're going to come back to Wilco at the end. So, so we'll put a, a pin in that. And I think this observation that you made is people saying, oh, what kind of tech do you have to build for insert, insert company here? And I think that at some level, people say tech is changing the world and, and things are, but then this thing you're, you're elaborating, like key card example, just as the thing is, you, you think it's just a, a commoditized product at this point. But then are you even mentioning about home automation and most people's home automation experience just tell them it doesn't actually just work. And so you run into all of these for no fault of necessarily the product provider, but they're fine tuning for like a specific use case and sometimes overly so. And if you're just outside of that or two steps outside of it, you sort of end up on your own. They're well, they're happy to sell you their product and it'll do maybe the thing it says on the package or you can hold them to it. But if you want to use it in a new application or a new way, you're sort of left out on alert yourself and sort of adapting it or adding front ends or gluing it together in some way or interfacing systems. And that's a, a bit of a recurring theme. And so, yeah, I, I'm not surprised to hear you say that, but it is great to hear such a, a sort of, I think, understandable example. Yeah. And that's what you know makes, we're going completely off topic, but that's what makes <laughs> build versus buy decisions so complicated because sometimes you have a product that is, you know, the, the leader in the space and supposedly great, but your use case is, like you said, just not the right use case for it. And, you know, sometimes you can adapt what you're doing and, and then, you know, just buy it and use it off the shelf. But sometimes what you're doing is unique and enough and not adaptable that you just have to build your own and, you know, always have to be very careful to make sure that you're not, uh, you don't have any, you know, not invented here biases that are causing you to, to build this yourself but sometimes it is the rational decision to you know build something that already exists you are right and i think making sure you've avoided the biases is is, is a bit of a trick there but uh yeah it's very difficult okay well yeah. to finally get Trying to, the, to oh. avoid the biases maybe maybe that's a better a better way to phrase it doing your best doing your best yeah uh okay so finally here we go we're here it's time we're going to talk about this so 
uh, code review, we already, I think, even set it up unintentionally, not that it was the purpose of the lead-in, but already sort of talking about students coming out of college, talking about, you know, expectations that are unobvious. I think several of those sort of tee us up or describe sort of code review. If you sort of type in, I don't, I haven't tried it. If you type into the search engine, define code review, I'm sure you get back something that probably adequately describes like the, the gist, but it doesn't capture the essence, right? Code review is a bit more than just the, uh, the most obvious, like I show you my code and you uh, grade it like a school paper. Um, I think, I think there's a bit more to that. And I think this is, this is going to tee up the discussion. So I'll give you the opening argument here, here on or your <laughs> opening discussion about, you know, what, how do you think about code reviews? Well, you know, I, I actually like to start with a topic that's early discussed, which is why code reviews, right? And if, like you said, you type in uh, code review into search engines, you're actually going to find a lot of content on how, you know, this is, these are the best practices when reviewing code. This is what we do at company X to review uh, our code, but why are you using code reviews? And once you get into that, there's a whole world where you start to realize, wait, how am I even taking someone else's workflow when our motivations are completely different? And sometimes you'll find that even within a, a single company, the, the motivations for code review are, are different between teams. Now, if you ask most people, I would assume that a lot of them are going to think that finding bugs before they make it to production is a motivation for code reviews. Um, and that's something I don't like, to be honest, because I think there are better ways to find bugs. Now, I'm not saying that if you find a bug in a code review, you should ignore it. I'm just saying that, you know, finding a bug in, in a code review is finding it too late in, in many cases, right? Uh, you want to find those way before that stage. Uh, a code review involves another person. You want to find that before you involve another person, uh, unless you're pair programming. Yeah, I think just on that before before you keep keep going, I, I think that this thing is interesting. I've had occurrences where I've reviewed someone's code and missed a bug, and they want to share responsibility. They're so so gracious, right? Well, you <laughs> reviewed the code, and so therefore, you know, you should have known it didn't do anything or didn't compile or didn't work. And I sort of, you know, that that conversation, that missed expectation about what was what was happening. But this thing is that even at the time, maybe I didn't spend an infinite amount of time and, and try to come through it or redo all their own work, but sort of setting up those expectations and making sure that the team shares them. But yeah, this one in specific, like that if you review your code, if you don't catch the bug, it becomes like your bug too. Uh, that's a, that's a bit of a hard uh, arrangement <laughs> to have. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's a bit extreme. Uh, but you, you mentioned the word share, which I think is, is really important in this context because code review is a lot about sharing. And to me, one of the biggest motivations is creating that shared ownership of the code, not shared ownership of the bugs necessarily. And, you know, I don't think people should own bugs. I think they should own up to them. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it, it's about creating that shared ownership of the code. And this is actually something that both the reviewer and the reviewee can take. Because if I'm reviewing your code and you might be working in this company or on this code base for four years and I'm just coming in and I'm reviewing your code, I'm actually learning a lot through it. I'm learning, first of all, you know, how are you used to working? 
And, you know, maybe I'm used to a different workflow and I'm learning about the patterns that you like in the code base. And I'm, I'm learning some of the gotchas uh, that I might find in this code. So reviewing is actually a great way to read code and reading code is a great way to familiarize yourself with the system, right? And you can't just go around reading code, but you can go around reading changes. That, you know, is, is a great way. I would say if you're starting reviewing code is actually a great way to start. Now, some people might balk at that and, and you know, they'll say, wait, but the person reviewing should know better than the person <laughs> uh, who's being reviewed. And you know what? That's not always the case. And you know, in, in many companies, there's someone at the top of the pyramid and someone needs to review their code, right? Uh, AI. That's what we have AI for. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think this observation is great. And I think, so two things. One is like, you can have more than one person review your code. So there's always that. But I do agree with this. And the other thing that, being thoughtful about this when you decide how to group stuff for a, let's just say we're using a Git workflow or whatever, you know, for a pull request or, you know, that that's, that's what we're going to take. How do you decide when to stop and when to do that? And making sure that you are not just doing that for your own convenience, but for the convenience of reviewers. And further, I agree with this point that like doing it such that a new person has a sort of, self-contained snippet narrative that takes them through, you know, hopefully we're all, we're going to assume some good software practices here. Assumption is like, you're seeing that maybe the person added a unit test for the failure that they were fixing or a test for a new feature they were adding. You see the code that was changed. You see how many places and what parts of the system got affected by that particular feature or that particular thing. And it becomes this self-contained encapsulated, like, description. No, not all pull requests would be like that. But I think a large amount of them can become this very like readable thing. And if you try to make sure you divide up your work in a way that the stream is readable, you're doing a great service to sort of the people who are coming after you. Exactly. And if you you know you need to familiarize yourself with a code base, that that's a tough a tough thing to do. And you probably need some combination of top-down and bottom-up, right? You need to understand the architecture of that code base, and, and that's the, sort of the top-down approach. And, you know, you see uh, how things communicate with each other, which components are there, et cetera, et cetera. But then you also need that top-down, that bottom-up, sorry. And I think that reading past reviews is actually a great way to familiarize yourself with a given code base and, and the given practices around it, which are just as important. I have, uh, I'm not the best at this, but I have consulted old code reviews of myself or others for just remembering which pieces need to go get changed again and seeing who commented on the time and said like, oh yeah, in the future, this needs to shift or this. And I'm like, oh, I'm doing it again now. That didn't make it in the code. It's necessarily appropriate as like a code comment, but let me go back to the review that happened at the time and see what did we discuss? What was our yep. thought about, hey, next time we visit this, let's consider doing, and ah, there it is. And so even if there isn't people on the team right now learning or in that stage, I, yeah, there could totally be in the future people reading your old code reviews and the process, you, what you're writing in the code, but also how people are interacting with that process and observing it. Exactly. So you know that, that's one motivation, but I can think of so many other motivations uh, that you might uh, want to review code for. And, you know, another one of these could be 
the quality of code. So you can automate some of that stuff, but some of it, you know, you want humans to take a look at the code and say, all right, I'm going to perhaps assume that the code is doing what's advertised, right? But is it good enough? Is it maintainable? Is it something we want in our code base? And that's, you know, another great motivation to have a code review. And there's so many different things, you know, is it, is it secure? Are there any performance implications to what's happening there? So many different things that you would like to test in a review. And finding bugs, like I said, to me is way towards the bottom of the motivation. But, you know, let's say that you've decided what your motivation for code reviews is. As I said earlier, it doesn't have to be consistent between teams, even with the same company. So at WeWork, for example, we had a billing team. They were building a product that build our customers. And when you build your customers, you need to make sure that everything is super accurate and you need to make sure that everything complies with tax laws, et cetera, et cetera. And the code review process is actually very long. And some of it is actually regulated. You have to make sure that to meet certain types of certain sets of compliance rules, the review needs to go through some process, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have another team that might be working on the front-facing website and wants to iterate quickly and, and get experiments out there. And you know, if anything bad happened, they're just going to roll forward and, and you know, fix it on the go. Why would those two teams follow the same process? You know, they, they start with different motivations it can't be that, you know, what I'm seeing in a blog post about the best way to do code reviews applies to both of these teams equally, right? I mean, there has to be some sort of adaptation to the, to the specific motivations you have on your team. Yeah, I, maybe, maybe a poor analogy, but someone brought something up the other day that I think like applies here or whatever, that if you take folks who work with, with wood, Someone who like frames a home and someone who builds fine furniture, they may both use a hammer. They may both use a saw, but like they don't use them for the same purpose. Like yeah. sure to cut wood or nail a nail. But like if you're doing fine furniture, like the delicacy and like force you're going to apply are very different than someone who has 783 two by fours to put together to, you know, yeah. make your house. Like the, how, how, what happens if you miss, right? Like, oh, I hit the two by four. Who cares? It's going to get covered up, you know? Versus like I'm driving in this nail into this, you know, thousand dollar piece of wood or whatever, right? Like you may both say, oh, they're both hammering. They're both doing carpentry or I I don't know if that's the right word for it. They're both doing woodworking. But to to your thing, the motivations are entirely different. And the way you would judge their performance shouldn't be the same. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and you know what? This actually happened to me when um, I showed this design to a, to a carpenter that's doing furniture and he looked at it and he said this looks like some someone you know who's building homes designed this this is not the way that you would design a piece of furniture and not the way you assemble it so you know he had a beef with the like the inside out versus outside in of like connecting uh you know the pieces of wood together so you're ab- you're absolutely right and I've, I've seen it firsthand and I think like to, to bring it back, I mean, I think this, your, your illustration, maybe people don't realize that actually that there are certain accreditations or sort of standards of safety or privacy for things like medical or whatever, where actually the artifacts, the code review itself becomes like a thing that should be recorded and processed to be followed 
for auditing purposes later. It's not that an external auditor is going to look at every one of your code reviews, but they want to be able to look at one of them and they want to see that it's always done and that it's not rubber stamped, right? That thought is put into it, that time is taken. And that's very different than like you mentioned, you know, hey, I got to get this hot fix out to the server in 37 seconds or we're going to lose a million dollars on the, you know, whatever, right? Like those two things don't have, shouldn't follow the same sort of code review. Yeah, I've seen auditors, you know, sample code reviews and, and look at them. And if you look at a code review like that, if one of the fields is missing, there's sample through your code reviews. Uh, we, we've had that. I've seen that. Um, and, and when that happens, you really want to make sure that the code review, you know, everyone's dotted their I's and, and crossed their T's and there's no missing field if there's a specific structure uh, to those uh, reviews, et cetera. Uh, but then if all you want to do is move fast and, and, and break things, um, potentially you could be skipping, um, you know, some of the things. And maybe this thing that is supposedly mandatory on our code reviews, we're actually fine with dropping it every now and then if we think like there's good justification. So the level of leniency could also change according to what's the impetus uh, for the review. Yeah, so I, I think this these call-outs are awesome, right? Like, you know, not not only about fixing bugs, about using it for the right right sort of task at hand. Like, is it is it rigorous? You know, audit compliance and has like a very specific format, or is it more sort of uh, uh, go super fast, or is it a kind of middle of the road? I, I assume most tasks are probably kind of the middle of the road ones, um, and sort of making sure that all of the right bits and moving parts are in place for, for a code review. And sort of like you said, I think there was a, a great call out. It's a, I don't want to say a pet peeve of mine, but something that I also do. So like, it kind of sounds dumb. One thing I screen for, like we use C++ and I screen for people using like, I don't want to say banned parts of C++, but like getting too cutesy <laughs> with their C++ work. And I'll come in as sort of like, you know, having been around a bit longer and sort of say like, no, actually like for maintainability purposes, please like don't do this clever, weird template metaprogramming trip and just like, you know, write it out. Uh, and so it, it, it sounds kind of goofy to kind of do for that purpose, but it's about making sure that the style and not the linter style, like you were alluding to other tools to do the job of checking that code compiles, linting, we didn't say those, but uh, I'll, oops. Uh, and so, or, you know, sort <laughs> of saying, that, <laughs> or sort of saying that, like, for me, it's that higher level stuff that is a human stylistic choice. Like, how are you choosing to decompose your functions? How are you, you know, structuring your code in a readable way? What paradigm are you applying here? Um, and that's what I'm sort of looking for in part when I do my reviews. Yeah, eventually, you know, we, um, we spend more time reading code than writing it. And definitely reading code is a more important skill than writing code. And you, you get to use it in a review, right? And when you read that code, you need to make sure that others can read that code too. And, and what you said about those C++ tricks is great because, you know, in, in many cases, you can actually read that code and understand what it's doing in, you know, in a split second, but you know that other people looking at it are going to have a hard time and are going to struggle with it. So sometimes you have to kind of look at it from the point of view of someone who's, you know, not necessarily at the same experience level as you. And, and when I say experience level, you know, this could be, um, you know, not just uh, an experience level, generally speaking, but experience with a specific product or a specific code base. Yeah, I think another one just to like chime in on while we're in this, in this vicinity that I've, I've done recently is 
and it's maybe it's people could debate if it may oh let's see what your opinion is if it belongs in the code review or in something else which is uh you know someone sort of made a choice that was a choice and i sort of put to them like hey we have two ways in the code base of doing this like you know this way a or way b um and we used to use only way a we started introducing way b you're writing this utility and this sort of like oh, like what what is your decision mechanism that you're choosing here to do way a instead of moving it to new to new way to way b um and then we sort of had a little bit of a discussion where other people could kind of kind of chime in which is you know hey we're writing this code we're trying to move to a new way like how what is the rubric we're using to follow about how to decide uh what technology to use or, or which place and i don't know actually if that's appropriate for a coder i mean i did it in a code review shame on me maybe but like uh, <laughs> maybe you're gonna burn me for it but like i think like to me that's an interesting like it, it made sense because it was in the place where it was happening but i'm actually like unclear if that's a does everybody see that on the team like is it the right place to do it so i think that you know once you've encountered a practice that you think is no longer the recommended practice for that team then calling it out during the review definitely makes a lot of sense. But depending on how big the, the change is between those two ways of doing that could hint at, you know, the fact that it should have been discussed earlier, uh, perhaps <laughs> in, in the same forum, perhaps in a different forum. But, you know, if the different way is, is we're no longer doing I++, we're doing plus plus I, when we're uh, incrementing a counter, you know, that's, that's fine to do in a review that that's okay. But if the new way is, um, oh, by the way, we're no longer using we're no longer using a remote uh, uh, RPC. We're uh, using uh, RESTful endpoints. Maybe that's too late. <laughs> uh, that's a great like. I don't want to say phrase like almost fits on a T-shirt, maybe not. But like code review sometimes is too late, and I think this is like a, a piece of tension between. Uh, someone not letting people know soon enough about a controversial decision, letting it go to code review and hoping that like they've passed the decision point and it'll just sail through. But the reverse is true as well. Other people hoping to like exercise a new agenda or whatever, trying to catch people in code review and forcing them to really take on more work than is appropriate when they, they had budgeted and they thought time was done. And now like they're faced with a, a you know, a large change. And, and, you know, when you say that, it, 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 there's an important point to, to be discussed here. Code reviews are probably one of the, the most common and, and sometimes one of the, 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 the best examples of combining soft and hard skills. So a code review is not just about code. It's an actual process between humans. And like you said, you know, sometimes people might be looking, you know, might be out to get uh, someone else in a review or might be trying to slip something past the reviewer. But these are just, you know, two things you might find. But there are so many other patterns of human behavior that you can find in reviews. And reviews could be very contentious because of that. You know, that's, that's where developers who in many cases have large egos come in and sometimes have conflicting interests and have to sort it out somehow. There's room for a lot of anti-patterns in here. The, the two that you mentioned are just two examples. There are so many others. It's scary when you think about it. Yeah, I think one thing I've tried to, I don't say promote, I've tried to, to encourage people 
is, and I think you were alluding to this early on in, in, in part, which people think about the tool of code review, whether it's like GitHub or some other, whatever tool you use, code review, um, and that tailoring it to the needs. But I would say like to the review can happen as well. You don't want to tailor every review in a specific way, but there are some changes which I, I, you, I will tell people, look, you need to socialize this before you put it up for code review. Like you need to go talk, like actually go to someone's desk or schedule a you know, video conference call with them and have a time to walk through so that they feel comfortable in doing the review, that they understand what's happening. It's not that that change is necessarily avoidable or bad. It may just need to be that way. It's a massive change. But give people a heads up. And, and that, that in itself is still code review. Like you are reviewing that code, but you're not using the code review tool, right? Like you're splitting the, the, the sort of what the why of code review into different parts. You may still go through the formal process of having someone approve it, but it might be a relatively empty you know, amount of requests or changes to be made. Why? Because you did them up front because you had someone go through it. And the like one I'll call out here is like people like to do that with interns, like wait till an intern gets almost to the end of the internship have them drop off a bunch of code and then like red mark the heck out of it because they didn't know this is the <laughs> style or this is the whatever. And I'm like, no, that's a really like you said, soft skill. That's a really bad soft skill practice. Like it's really frustrating. And the second thing is like, you really, it, you, it, you probably knew in advance that was going to happen and you let it get that far. Like you should have just gone to them and said, Hey, can we sit down and look at your code? Can you put up your branch and let me look at it? Whatever the right, you know, technology. Yeah, you want to set people up for success with their reviews, and and you know, if people are are getting to the review at, in their last day or last week of the internship, and everything is red marked, then you know that in a way that's sort of a waterfall approach, right? You <laughs> you let them write everything in advance, and then it goes to the review stage where everything is happening, and then afterwards it's going to go to the next stage. That it's very waterfall, and and you know, waterfall is considered you know, bad practice these days and, and for good reasons. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be discussing things before you write them. It doesn't mean that every change is the same. And, you know, the size of the change matters. The impact that it has matters even more. And more importantly, like you said, the, the, the motivation uh, that people might have or, the, or their, the, their desire to succeed in getting their code into production also plays a part um, in that. I think we could probably go at length for code reviews and, and uh, pontificating or soapboxing, but well, I'll try to land, let's try to try to try to land this, this aircraft down, which is, sure. um, I think, as you mentioned, like the, we haven't even, well, I guess I did, you didn't, but you know, we haven't talked about the specific tool or the how of code review. Instead, we sort of explored this topic of, of why, uh, I know there's probably tons more more you like to say, but any sort of like yep. final things we kind of didn't get to or, or sort of things you want to call out? Well, I'll, you know, just the fact that it is an interaction between humans and you, you need to be careful in how you conduct yourself just like any other way. You know, people tend to think that what I write in a code review is not like a regular conversation. I, I, you know, I can be snarky. I can be offensive. I can I can just be a bad colleague. Well, Guess, guess what? You can't. Uh, it's another form of communication. You need to be respectful. People have worked hard to do what they do. And even if you don't agree with it, and even if you're right, it could be because the other person is used to a different team that was working 
in a different way. And, you know, they could be right for the context that they're used to. And you definitely should assume that they're not doing anything bad on purpose. Um, so just, you know, code reviews are probably the, the easiest way to get to developers at each other's throats. Uh, so just you know, keep that in mind and, and, and be careful. Yeah, such, such a great observation. I mean, I guess to use your, your sort of uh, quip from earlier to your, to your interviewer asking about what's a context switch, like, are you serious? Not an appropriate code review comment. Like, are you serious? <laughs> like, I, I, I have seen stuff at that level. That's not a, a sort of like, a per, like, go to them. Like, send them a Slack message, schedule a meeting. Like, you can have, it's not some violation of some inviolate, like, contract that they pull down the code review, change something and put it back up. Again. Like, this is perfectly fine. Uh, and so you are right. Like, I have seen way too many people get at each other's throats because someone was grinding. There is a, a cultural norm to establish and help shape all of us every time we do it are subtly influencing the team's culture of code review and new people especially like have to get onboarded to that process and and don't get me wrong you know i've had my fair share of arguments over code reviews and you know i'm not perfect and 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 i've made many of the mistakes that i uh, try to preach other people not to do but as you do more and more of these you start seeing the patterns in advance of a conversation not going the right way. And if you're the more senior of the, of the people interacting in that review, that is your responsibility at this point to figure out that the conversation is not go going in a productive direction. And that is perhaps the time for you to maybe take it to a different medium where you can discuss privately and, and reach some understanding and then come back to the public conversation in a better mood and uh, less argumentatively. Is that a word? <laughs> Argumentative. Argumentative, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's such, a, such a good point. I mean, I think the one thing I tell senior folks is, you know, if there's two junior folks or more junior folks, you know, arguing about something, like they're sort of in a, in a competition in a sense. And you as a, you know, you know, staff engineer or a principal engineer, like you've already won. In this sense, like you've already gotten the thing that these people want to have one day. And so, you know, taking that approach of saying, look, you know, you've you've already won and you can't you can't unwin. Like no one's going to down. I mean, I've never heard of a company down leveling a prince, uh, an engineer. Uh, I mean, they'll, they'll fire people before they down level them. So so it's like you, you've kind of you've established yourself, you know. And so now, like, if you can make a small sacrifice to really like bring these people together, that's that's really something that you're uniquely kind of positioned to do, and that's something that I think is is could be difficult for people as they kind of move up to uh, to understand that that is something that they're uniquely positioned to be able to provide to the to the company. But eventually, that that's what their job is, right? If you're a staff engineer, one of the responsibilities yep. that you have is making everyone around you better, you know, all the other engineers. Um, right. So if, if they don't understand that, maybe they should be down-leveled. <laughs> Wait a minute. Know, I, have read, I have read a lot of articles on Hacker News about what makes a senior engineer. I don't recall reading a lot about empathy or sacrifice <laughs> or what are you guys talking about? That's not what makes a senior engineer. You know, it's, it's just like the college thing, right? They teach you the wrong things. All the people who chose spaces became senior. That's how I, I have to admit, though, Jason. Uh, J Jason, I'm, 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 I'm envious every time you speak. You have such a good microphone. 
And, <laughs> you know, I, I'm on my, you know, crappy headset. Uh, you know, Patrick and I got, when did we get microphones? Like five, six years in? I don't even know how that happened. And then I reverted back from uh, onto lazy. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, since you moved, right? It's probably still in yeah. a box somewhere. Somewhere. I got to dig it up. All <laughs> right. Well, that has been an awesome exploration. I, I know there's more to do, but I, I'm just going to, I'm going to just put the, the sort of uh, period at the end of that sentence, whether we punctu- whether we should have or not. Uh, but we're, let's talk a bit about, about Woka. So we, we, we sort of put a pin in it in the beginning. We're coming back to it now. You saw a need for a startup, right? I mean, like ultimately, I, maybe I'm presuming that's what st- founders tell us, right? Like I saw a need, I saw a desire, something that was not there and I was uniquely suited or so passionate that I needed to go build it. Help tell us like why Wilco? Yeah, sure. So, you know, if you take a lot of the points that we discussed today, you realize that there is a mismatch between what people learn and what people are actually doing as software developers. And it doesn't matter what level. I mean, like you said, you've read all these uh, all these articles on, on what a senior engineer should be, and most of it is about code. But code is just one skill out of many that a good software engineer needs. And college doesn't teach them that. Boot camps don't teach them that. And eventually, developers need to practice. And the only way to practice is on the job. But when you practice on the job, it's A, very slow. It's be very error prone and C doesn't provide equal opportunity. So much depends on which team you get to and whether we had the opportunity to get into a good team. So what we said is, what if we give developers a good way to practice? And when we say practice, we mean all of the skills, not just uh, code writing. What if we could give developers a good way to practice that is safe, that is in their own pace, that depends just on their merit. And we came upon this idea of giving them or letting them join a fantasy company. And that company has a production-like system with logging and monitoring and analytics and load balancing and a real data set, not just you know five records in a single table. And it has the biggest mess of all, which is people. So you have colleagues and you have team leads and product managers and stakeholders and all of that. And on top of that, you start going on simulations or adventures or we call them quests because we're so um you know and influenced by 80s video games so you start going on quests and a quest could be we have a performance problem in production please figure out what happened what's the root cause what's the extent of the damage fix it and communicate it to stakeholders and the focus is not on fix it because you can learn how to fix it in college or at a boot camp or even online the focus is how do you even know that something's wrong what do you do to investigate it? Uh, when do you go for a quick and dirty fix? When do you go for something more meaningful? How do you ensure that lessons are learned and implemented? And that's definitely something that's not covered anywhere. Um, and you know, all of these tiny things that you really only pick up on the job. And that's what we're trying to help you do with Wilco. Yeah, I mean, th- this is, you're right, like such an uncovered, people make quips about sometimes like, Maybe I only wrote one line of code, but the hard part is figuring out what line of code to write. And I think, yeah, yeah once you know what it is you're trying to do, I mean, we make that choice, just Stack Overflow or whatever, right? Like you just go to Stack Overflow, like how to turn off, you know, database backups and, you know, during peak performance or whatever, I don't know, making something up. But knowing what to Google is, is sort of this like untaught, 
very long lead time, long iteration. Or even like, knowing that you should Google. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, yeah. I mean, let's say I, I changed the database schema. It's no longer the same. Should I do something about it? Or should I just, you know, go to production and everything would be okay? Well, turns out most people early in their career are probably not going to search anything about it. They're going to assume that, oh, I just added an index. Everything is, you know, everything should be fine. But then it goes to production and the database is, is halting and, and um, you know, nothing's working. Well, you should have Googled it before and now it's kind of too late. So it's not just how to Google, it's even when. Uh, mm, yeah, I, this, this too, I, we were joking about, you know, senior engineers, this like on the job, hard knock training about like that, building up that intuition a bit. Um, and it's great to hear that I think maybe I, I call it intuition, but actually you're kind of like, no, 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 wait, wait, this isn't that this is some unteachable, unknowable thing that actually put into the right circumstances. There are some commonalities here, some, some simulations where we can put people through and sort of have them kind of realize that themselves. Yeah. I mean, like they say, the, the way to Carnegie Hall is practice, 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 right? So um, it, it, it's not just for, for music. It, it goes like that for every type of profession and software engineering is no different. You need to practice and practicing actually allows you to develop intuition. Um, musicians that improvise practice a lot beforehand. They, it's not just that, you know, they go out and improvise them. They learn the basics, understand what are scales and, and how they fit with each other and, and how melody and harmony work together. And then they can start improvising, right? And, and same goes for software engineering. If you practice enough, you'll develop that intuition that allows you to do things or know uh, when things might go wrong and when things uh, are, are pretty safe. You, you might still get it wrong, but at least in most cases, uh, you'll get it right. And, you know, we, we've actually seen other professions do something similar. So one of the things we looked at as we were working on Wilco is this thing called CTA, which is cognitive task analysis. Um, and what we've seen is that firefighters learn the theory of fires and what to do in an incident, but then they go to an incident and, and they, they might not necessarily be able to apply the theory that they've learned, whereas a firefighter with 20 years of experience gets into a scene and knows exactly what to do and, and, and how to do it, uh, but they can't teach it. And what CTA does is it tries to extract that knowledge, that expert knowledge, and turn that into something that could be handed off or could be taught to other people. And that, that combination of intuition, experience, wisdom, some people call it, is, you know, that's the elusive thing that we're trying to, to really give you with Wilco. This observation is really good that the other fields do. I have some family in the medical field. And one of the interesting things is part of their degree is doing on the job sort of, you know, uh, internships, as it were, I guess they, they call them other stuff. Um, but they also do simulations where they bring in actual patients who have like a set of things they're supposed to say. And you say, oh, that's just testing their knowledge. But actually, you can have something that sounds exactly like a very esoteric disease. But I think uh, there's some phrase for it. I'll misquote it, so I'm not going to say it here. But the point being, like, 
there might be a much more mundane answer that could manifest the same way. And that's the one you should test first, not jump to the one in a million super rare mutation disease. Because all of them watched House and they think that, you know, that's the, that's the life of a doctor. <laughs> yes, because everyone comes off that training. And so it's this thing you said, which is one, extracting the knowledge, like teaching flows. They call it like differential diagnoses. Like how do you decide between A and B? What is the test to apply? What is the choices? But then also not stopping there and teaching it, but actually putting them in a you know, more complex, more messy case with real humans who don't describe things accurately. Or, you know, no, I don't have a cough, (laughs) you know, and sort of like, yeah, you're getting contradictory inputs. And so what do you do then? A friend told me once, uh, he gave me a great analogy. He said that if he wants to understand the state of the art in medicine, he's going to go to someone who just graduated med school. But if he needs someone to operate on his shoulder, then, you know, he's going to go to, to a doctor with or a surgeon with 15 years of experience. And that surgeon might actually know less than the recent grad, but they've been there, done that. And, and, you know, software engineering is like that. There's a difference between knowing the state of the art and actually being able to practice it. Well, cool. All right. So tell us a bit about Wilco as a company too. So we talked about it as a, as a sort of product and solution and, and sounds very engaging. Um, and we'll include it in the show notes, but you can go to trywilco.com and check it out. But talk to us about about Wilco as a company. Are you guys hiring interns? Like, what is the kind of behind the scenes of creating these quests? It sounds really interesting. Like, how is all that uh, powered? Yeah, it's, 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 you know, I'm biased, but I think it's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And writing a quest, you know, is a combination of understanding the the skill you want to practice or the the lesson that you want to convey, but also tying that into a narrative and, and, and making sure that it's part of a curriculum. You can go on Wilco, you can practice all sorts of things and, and it's not, you know, you, you use your own tools. So, you know, you're going to use your command line, you're going to use your IDE, uh, but you might be using an observability tool, for example, because you need to maintain production. That's something that you don't do in college, right? But it's not just for college grads, right? You might be doing um, 20 years of, of programming in a different field and you're coming into something new or you're just looking to practice. So... You're going to, you know, touch upon different tools and all of that. And of course, you could also be building your own. So we don't have it just yet, but very soon we'll have an editor uh, where you could be writing your own quests and contribute that to sort of the Wilco ecosystem. We already have companies that have built quests and they're on the platform, but in the future, we'll open this up to individuals as well. Very cool. Very cool. Do you guys, um, for hiring, are you looking for people who are like strictly like very senior established and ready to sort of impart what they've learned? Or you're looking for up and coming people to help build out the things that build the, I mean, I guess it becomes a eat your own dog food kind of thing. Well, yeah, where do you I guys mean, kind of do most of your hiring? Since we're, you know, all about developing developers, you know, it would be very hypocritical of us if, if we wouldn't be open to people of all experience levels. And we think that Wilco is a great way for them to bridge that gap and, and, you know, very quickly gain experience. Um, so we're really open to all experience levels, but this needs to be people who are, you know, th- that are passionate about furthering the skill or the craft and, and becoming better developers. Um, I think most developers have that intrinsic motivation. So, you know, that's the kind of people uh, that we want on our side. And actually, you know, being inexperienced in many ways has sort of an advantage of, you know, being able to call out things that, we take for granted and might be tough 
on you know people who don't uh, who, you know we haven't exercised that skill or learned that um, area. Awesome. Well, th- this has been a great conversation on, um, you know, Thank we you. covered a lot of ground. We put a lot of uh, side tracks aside and, and sort of we tried to stay, stay on track a bit. But uh, Side track is my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. Oh, I did. Oh, I see what you did there. Okay. Well, there's, there's our pun of the day. Um, and so, so uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I think people are really going to like this. I think it was a, a thoughtful thing, you know, as a, as a junior engineer, I made a lot of really dumb mistakes. I, you know, sometimes I wish I had the exposure to the things I, I think are me around too, now, too. but to be honest, probably wouldn't have paid attention to them. So, but maybe, maybe we'll catch the person who thinks they don't need it, but uh, you know, maybe, maybe kind of puts a bit of extra thought into it today, but yeah, great advice all around. Thanks for being on the show. You know, I think it's uh, it's been an awesome time. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been, uh, it's been really great. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. All right. We'll see everyone next time. See you later. Music by Eric Barndoller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind. <laughs>